Welcome to the Knife Making Down Under podcast. This is podcast number three. I think we're all feeling like we might be drinking a little bit less this time around after last week's shenanigans. I think my, <laughs> my head still hurts and uh, Mert's still got a strange smell in the corner of his shed. Mate, I fucking got up. I got up last time and I got up and I fucking fed the dogs and I made breakfast and I made a cup of coffee. And then about 10 minutes after that, I went, oh, I'm not feeling so fucking good. I think I'll go lie down again. And then I fucking got up, no shit, 20 past 11, <laughs> walk out into walk out into the fucking dining, oh, formal sort of dining area, and my son's home for the school lockdown shit. And he fucking looks up at me, smiles, and goes, oh, have a bit of a sleep in, did you, Dad? I've <laughs> just gone. I have looked at him. My son's nearly 18. I looked at my son and go, oh, daddy drank too much whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) And then I fucking got back and had second fucking round of coffee and then went up to my workshop and drank some water and then I fucking got into it. And I actually had a very productive afternoon following such a shitty fucking morning. (laughs) It's, It's funny. People were saying that I was singing and... Things like that. I remember none of it. <laughs> and, and the funniest bit about that is you haven't listened to the podcast, so you really won't remember it. Actually, actually, guys, actually, guys, I should, I should start the podcast with a disclaimer and with an apology. After the last week's podcast, I got a lot of grief and a lot of messages, and I think I offended people. I want to start this podcast saying I want to apologize from no fucking body. Three drunk guys having a chat over fucking whiskey, having a beers and shit, okay? If this is really hurting your feelings, I'm sorry. But not really, not sorry. Hey, here's a tip. Listen to the podcast at night and make sure you drink some drinks before you actually fucking turn it on. <laughs> we will resume to normal programming at some stage. But until then, maybe it's actually until a, then. a highlight of our week. Yeah. Hashtag the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sad. It fucking is, actually. It's the fucking highlight. <laughs> so what are we drinking tonight, boys? Oh, well, it was just funny. The guys were just talking about having too much whiskey and stuff last week and the excesses we did and the hangovers. So this week I was just drinking red wine, but I looked at the empty glass sitting next to my laptop, which I <laughs> left here since last time, and I think, hmm, a whiskey would be nice. <laughs> So just Shiraz at the moment. I'm drinking red wine Shiraz. Right. Uh, I'm having Shiraz as well. For tonight, we have the 2018 Taylor's Shiraz Claire Valley. Would you like to take a sip, sir? Hmm. I want to do that. That's that, a very nice wine. I want to do that fancy thing where I sniff it and then tell you it smells off. You know at the restaurants? No, you want to sniff it and tell it's like, you, you want to sniff it and tell it's yeast. It smells like cabbage, don't you? Well, <laughs> it is red wine. Mm. Let's be honest. You are what you drink. Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me, sir. I ordered the red wine, not the cabbage soup. (laughs) This is the moment that I would like to tell a story from back when I was cooking. And we had this, we had this really rough server. She was rough as guts. And we were talking and saying, talking about the good, tasty things in life, like cheese and wine and beer and bread and we're saying like they all have yeast in it like these are all things they've been added with yeast and simple ingredients turn into very complex flavors and they taste so nice and 
anyway, she just she just continued and said, yeah. She just gave another example saying pussy was in the same category. So you might want to delete that, but. <laughs> <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. I'm all right with it. I thought we were going we to get some secret fucking demerge recipes. <laughs> she, she said that and we left. All the conversation stopped and yeah, that was that was a bad day. Yes. Yeah. But you remembered it. Yeah. But you remembered it. Yeah. Mm, there you go. Oh. I have no I have no such stories to lament over. Oh, yeasty host- yeasty goodness. <laughs> Hospitality. Well, kimchi. Kimchi is a fermented cabbage. Kimchi. That's in the list too. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight, darling? <laughs> kimchi. <laughs> we got fermented cabbage. So hasn't that stuck? The group's growing exp- anyway. well, not exponentially. It's starting to slow down. We're up to about, I don't know, there's like under a 1,000 members, but we're getting up there. A lot of good people joined, so that's yep. knife yep. making down under. We've got a lot of really good makers on there, a lot of new guys, and yeah, it should be fun. You guys seen Knife that Henning posted? That talented bastard posted? Have you seen that? Didn't I predict that would happen? I predicted that would happen like 10 minutes after I released the podcast. It happened. That's because yep. just fucking it did. It was awesome. We'll get that bastard on here. We'll definitely get that yeah. bastard on here. Do we need subtitles? We might do. Yeah. We can translate for him. Yeah. Yes. I'm drinking a blended Canadian from Canada, Crown Royale whiskey, and um, I'll just say it's not scotch. But uh, as I was telling the boys earlier, I lost a significant sum of money today, of my, my son's life savings, if you will. So... Uh, I'm just going to be drinking what I've got lying around for a while <laughs> in penance. Yeah, fair enough. You're drinking Trudeau piss, yeah. basically. Yeah, sorry, all you Canadians. I know you love it from Canada. Do we have any Canadians on the uh, on the stats for the listeners? Yeah, we do. So if if anybody's out there listening from Canada, we want you to join the Facebook group. Can, you mean Canada? Uh, same Canada? thing. Isn't it Canada? Yeah, no, we say Canadian. I'm Australia, Australian. In Australia, it's Canadian. Canadian, Canadian. <laughs> they understand, trust yeah. me. We actually have 68 Canadian listeners. No shit. So you guys can all join up Knife Making Down Under. Fuck me, that's unreal. There's heaps of fucking Australians and Americans. Yeah. But Canadians, only 68. So you guys give us a shout out on your social media. If you're a Canadian and you're listening to this, well, you'd have to ask questions about your sanity and shit. But give us a shout out. Say hello. That'd be great. Uh, same for New Zealand and the United Kingdom, who incidentally uh, listen to us as well. There you go. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Nice, eh? Nice, eh? <laughs> Fuck yeah. I like Canada. I went to Ontario one time and um, I was getting drunk in a bar, funnily enough, and this guy was sitting next to us and we got talking and he was from Canada and they had a school bus that had been converted with airbags so you could drive it out on the lake, drop it onto the ice, lift a hatch, drill your hot hole in the ice, sit in the school bus with disco lights and fucking all your music and fucking beer fridge, heated, everything, and just ice fish. It's just like the coolest fucking fishing I've ever heard of. I want to go and do it. I want to ice fish Fuck yeah. in a school bus. So if you're one of our 68 listeners in Canada and you have a school bus we can go fishing in, just look, hook us up, guys. Hook us up. We'll think you're cool forever. Oh, fuck yeah. They, they are cool already. Well, yeah, mainly because it's minus 40, but yeah. <laughs> Brett Selly posted up on the uh, Knife Making Down Under group that listeners this week were going to have a drinking competition and they were going to drink a shot of whiskey or other every time we said cabbage. And by that I mean cabbage, 
there's two shots. And uh, every time Mert, I think it was, said, fuck you, Kev, they had to scull a beer. Oh, fuck. They're going to get worse than us. I told them that within about 23 seconds into this, they'll be fucking dropped on the ground dead. Yeah. So there you go. You know, play silly buggers, cabbages. We'll fucking get onto that. Yeah, fucking coleslaws. Very good. So what what else has been happening? I mean... It, it's funny about it, but it's it's stuff that we talk about. It feels like fucking two weeks since we last caught up. I fucked up last week on the podcast what? by saying it was two weeks between recordings, and it was only a week. Time has no meaning at the moment. It's bad enough working from home full time and you lose track of days, but when your son's home from school and then you mix in Easter and your wife's home for a few extra days, I honestly had no fucking idea what today was day-wise. Day and the Easter long weekend thing, like Easter long weekends, the weekends you go out and do something awesome and go camping or something. I mean, what a what a fucking disaster! Yeah, it was funny. Social media saw a lot of people backyard camping, which was funny, taking advantage of having fire pits and decks and setting up swags and all that sort of stuff. Last night, um, Rowan, Rowan and I set the uh, wood fired pizza oven going, and then we grabbed the fire pit. Drag that a little bit closer to the uh, to the oven and uh, set a fire in that. And then we had, ironically, had dinner inside. Then went back outside, drank a heap of red wine, and I thought, "Fuck, it must be like ten o'clock at night," because I was feeling pretty pissed. <laughs> I looked at my watch and it was like quarter to eight. <laughs> I'm like, "I'm like, no, fuck this, darling. Let's go inside." <laughs> How much burl do you go through in the fire pit and the pizza oven? No, man, seriously, I've got this is this is where people fucking got really pissed off with me at fucking uh, one one fucking post I made on one of the groups. I strategically set up really shitty, non-usable fucking offcuts of burl to make it look like they were fucking big usable pieces, and I burned it in my pizza oven and copped a whole lot of fucking shit from people and. Uh, so I've got, honestly, I've got like a fucking, what's the standard garbage bin, 60 litres? I've got a 60-litre bin full of fucking shitty offcuts, and that's just like the fucking kindling stuff. And then I just bought one of those fire fucking wood covers, and I've got fucking so much other burl and offcut of other shit in there. It's honestly, it's not funny, but I'm a fucking scab. I'm a wood whore, hoarder, fuck man, I don't give up shit easily. And when people see me burning shit, trust me, you cannot fucking use it. Well, maybe some people can, but not me. What, what if you use, cover the things with the CA glue, bro? Fill the void. Look, there's guys that do the hybrid stuff, which I'm not overly a big fan of. And admittedly, you probably could use some of my stuff for hybrids, but I value my pizzas, my pizza oven, and I like burning shit. And it's it's just like bad luck. So yeah, we, we I probably I burn a lot of fucking shit. <laughs> My highlight of the Easter of the Easter long weekend social media was uh, Adam from Holtz burning his coffee table camping out in the backyard. Did you see that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a quiet laugh about that. A part of my burnings on the weekend was the leftovers from a fucking um, antique bedhead that someone gave me that I chopped up into about fucking. 80 pieces of usable timber and stabilised it. Um, and then the remnants, it was like, oh, well. <laughs> and, yes, I got permission off the people. They were going to throw it in the fucking bin uh, before everyone arcs up. Well, uh, this Easter weekend, 
the best thing happened to me was I had a chance to do some forging. And I did some, I did some pattern velvet steel and some Damascus and forged some knives. And, and I'm down to two knives. I got two knives left for a custom. And now oh. I feel so relieved that I have, I gained my creative freedom back again. And I can just make things because I like to make it versus this knife making turn into a job. Like you come in, you open the shed doors and you look at the books. What do you have? Let me just work this, work that. And the best thing was like I had a piece of I had a piece of I did a twist Damascus and I looked it up I'm like yeah the single bar wasn't going to be enough I just cut the single bar in half stacked them on top of each other welded them and going to forge and forged it and turned into a knife and I had another piece when I made my mosaic I had two of the tiles fell apart and I kept those tiles and I cleaned the insides and I found another high carbon steel. I used those ties as a cladding for my semi and I just made a small semi because I can, because I don't have any other thing to do. So it just feels better. It's a, I can make things. Be creative. It feels so relieving. Yeah. I've got to, I've got to make yeah. stuff now to pay off my fucking son. So I'll be making a few knives to sell, which will make a few people happy. <laughs> oh, mate, I'm, I'm devo about that. Make a fucking barrel knife. Make a small barrel knife. Like one of your fucking small, the same size as your smallest one you've done so far, and I'll buy it off you. Oh, thanks, mate. How about we auction it? How about we auction it? Oh, fuck you. I'll fucking buy it. Yeah. Yeah, he wants mates, right? You fucking. Yeah, he wants to fucking outbid me. That's what Mer wants to do. How about you How about you come out up when all this shit's done and you and I sit down and we finish the two you started? Yeah, I've got. To at least two in the fucking world. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a fucking miniature one that I found in a fucking bag. I don't even know when I fucking started it. It wasn't with you. Oh, really? It was well before. How big is it? Uh, the fucking blade length would be like fucking 25 millimeters. Oh, no way. That's too hard. It's fucking tiny. It's tiny. So I'll fucking finish it up. All right. That's That's ambitious. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah no, I've got a couple of guys that have been chasing me, and one of them's a big-time collector over here. He's one of the best guys in Australia. And if you ever approached at, a, at your table by a guy that's dressed like a bum and uh, looks like a bit of a bum, you just always be fucking nice. There's guys, there's guys out there that collect knives that you don't know. You just don't know. And this guy is a legend, a legend. I won't give him away but he's a legend yep and um he's just a fucking legend yeah you guys know who i'm talking about don't you yeah i think so look in one of my uh, I'd, I'd give it i'd give him one but after today's losses i need the cash <laughs> <laughs> in one of my earliest jobs that i had when i was working at a bar this fucking dude came into the bar and he honestly looked like a fucking this this is just me talking this dude looked like a piece of shit and this bar that I worked in, it had piece of shit customers coming in all the time. Honestly, they were fucking dregs. This dude walks in, and I was young and fucking, you know, just polite, well-raised, well-mannered. Always treated everyone, you know, fairly. So this bloke comes in, and I'm like, you know, how you going, mate? Yep. Give him some money to put in the poker machines. And then my fucking manager comes over and goes, whatever that guy wants, Make sure he gets it and just be be really fucking nice to that guy. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
So anyway, take on notice over the course of a few hours. This guy spent, you know, about three and a half, four thousand bucks in the pokies. And this is back in the days where dollar coins were new in the poker machines. He's lost about fucking four grand. And basically, you know, if you wanted a coffee, I had to make him a coffee. If you wanted a bottle of Coke, I had to make him a bottle of Coke. And he's just this fucking loser-looking bloke. And I'm thinking, oh, it must be some drug dealer or something. And uh, lo and behold, wasn't the case. He was a fucking, just ran a transport company, was like multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And, he, and his vice, the only vice that he had, he fucking loved to gamble. So he'd come into the he'd come into the pub that I worked at, and he'd fucking drop ten grand into the poker machines, and lose it. He'd be a real asshole while he was losing his money, and he'd come up at the end of the end of the fucking time, and he'd be like, "Thanks, man. Oh, good on you for fucking looking after me." And slip you fifty bucks or something, and you're like, "Oh, fuck you. All right." So fifty bucks back then was a couple of hours work, or three hours work, four hours work. But like I said, you can't fucking dismiss how people look. And at, at the same note, like I said, yeah, I've picked them up over time, the people at knife shows that come in dressed looking pretty ordinary um, and don't mind spending a dollar or two on good quality knives. So you just fucking got to make sure you treat everyone well. That's it, mate. There's nothing more important. Yeah. You just got to do it in general. Be fucking good to people in general. Yeah. Don't be cabbages. Unless you're Brett Sally. Unless you're Brett Sally and we'll be... We'll just be shit to you, Brett, because you love it. Yeah, he likes it. Yeah, he does shit, like it. <laughs> Cabbage. Cabbage. <laughs> Drink up, bitch. <laughs> I had a message from him on Facebook, on Messenger, and he said, hi, Matt. I'm like, yeah, mate, hi. And I'm like, question mark, what do you mean? He said, ah, oh, you just said, said you shouted at me on the on the, on the the podcast. I want to return it back. I'm like, ah, oh, I see. <laughs> he was worried. I told him we yeah. fucking mentioned him. He was pretty worried. He was shit scared. Yeah. Yeah, he got off easy. So uh here we are guys. What are we gonna do tonight? We um we're gonna play the pokies, eat some peanuts, fucking play darts, or are we gonna answer some questions? Let's answer some questions, but what we're gonna do is pause for a moment. Cause that big fucking glass of red wine that I had evaporated. It's pretty warm in my study. I've got to go and get another fucking glass. So hang on a sec. Why don't you bring the bottle? You, you two talk amongst yourselves. Sorry, I'm topping mine up now. Oh. I have to drink this shit ice. Anyway, sorry, Canadians. Tell your friends how bad we are and get them to listen to us as well. That's that's how you do it. We've interviewed a few people over the time that we've been doing this. We've interviewed a lot of special guests and we've interviewed each other, but we have never interviewed Kev. And so tonight yep. we made the decision that it's time to uh, to give Kev a drilling of a different kind, obviously. and With, with the wall down? With, with the wall down, that's it. <laughs> Going to go down on Kev. Okay, if you had the opportunity to... So today, I put a post up on the group, that is Knife Making Down Under on Facebook. If you had the opportunity to ask Kevin Slattery a question in a seriously serious interview, what would it be? So there's quite a few comments on that post, and we should have an interesting time asking Kev basically some of these questions that you guys asked along with some of our regular questions and let's drill down into the man the enigma the myth the legend and uh well the piss head piss head yeah <laughs> fuck, fuck him, I've, got another, 
I've got another full glass of red wine. That fucking, it's hot in my study. That fucking glass of wine just evaporated. I just went out to get the more wine, and my wife's like, are you done already? And I went, I'm done with my nah. glass of wine. I said, I'm done with my glass of wine, but not with the podcast. So we haven't even started yet. We're just talking shit. And she's like, no. She just said, that's fucking nothing unusual with you. You talk shit all the time. We do. All right, so let's start off with a couple of standard questions just to sort of get a bit of history about Kev. What do you reckon, Matt? Kev. Hi. I feel strange. Usually when I say Kevin, when I pause, it always, it always <laughs> follows up. It always follows up. And fuck you, Kev. But no, no, no. Kev. Yes. How, how about you start telling a little bit about yourself, man? So let's start with your childhood, mate. <laughs> well, I feel like I should be fucking lying down on a fucking psychologist couch. Yeah. Lay, lay on my knee. Lay on my knee. Come on. Come on. Lay on my knee. <laughs> oh. Hey. We've done that before. Once is enough. I don't remember. <laughs> Kev, let's rewind back, man. Kev Slattery, when he's little, what was the moment that you fell in love with the knives? Well, man, I'm not a fucking boomer, right? Every prick that says I'm a fucking boomer. I'm not. I'm Gen X. I checked the dates. No, I come from that fucking age group, man, where we could carry a knife, we could go up to the local shops with 20 cents and buy fucking what we call pohars, firecrackers, and a lighter or a box of matches and just go out and have fun and, you know, be left to our own devices and come home with all fingers and toes intact and all that sort of stuff. So from a very early age... I had access to knives and stuff like that and, you know, pocket knives and a couple of sort of decent little hunting knives that my old man had. My old man was a um, was a fairly sort of bit of a wild child, actually, my dad, when we look back in the past and loved hunting, loved fishing. Some of my earliest uh, memories were used to go down to the south coast and we'd be camping in this property in the middle of nowhere and they do things like eeling, and we'd get up in the morning, and the old man would have, they, and his mates would have caught all these eels, and you know, so it was like outdoors, run around, crazy type lifestyle. Whereabouts was it, Kev? Well, I, I was raised in Canberra, but like I said, South Coast and sort of dams around the region, Boangala Dam, that sort of stuff, um, were places that we all we frequented. With me, with me, dad and whatnot. Well, like I said, just at home and stuff, man. If I went out to, you know, as a young kid, if I went out to play in the backyard, I'd have a knife on me and I'd go and cut fucking branches off shit and stab fucking ants, burn ants with a fucking magnifying glass, that sort of stuff. All these things that nowadays you probably looked at and be quantified as a fucking serial killer or some shit. Oh yeah, that's you know, but. I had access to that sort of stuff all the time. And when I got a little bit that's older, why I like you. Know, that's why I yeah. like you. That's why I like you. Cool son of a bitch. I yeah, like that's you. it. Nice. Uh, but we'd get on our bikes and we'd drive right out to the bloody lake and uh, catch carp and stuff. And we'd always have knives and shit on us. If you didn't have a knife on you as a young fella, uh, something was wrong or you'd lost it pretty much. So definitely from a very young age, definitely influential with that sort of stuff. Nice. So, do you remember what your first knife actually was? What was it? No, nah, I had a, um, I had a buddy, were they the Swiss Army knife replica? 
I remember, remember it vividly. It even had the old toothpick holder in it, <laughs> which I lost pretty much, I think, the second day I owned the thing. And I just remember having this, you know, red plastic uh, lined folding knife with about, you know, with a few blades on it. And, and that was the thing that was just cool. Everyone had that same sort of knife when I was growing up. My old man had um, a number of reasonable knives. And when he died, I made sure I sort of got into um, have a bit of a look at what he had in his fishing kit and whatnot. Um, because the rest of my family couldn't, you know, honestly just couldn't give a fuck about what knives he had. And I went and grabbed a couple of blades that he had that sort of held some sort of meaning to me. Uh, but, yeah, the first knife I had, mate, was just a standard old pocket knife, just a cheapie, just a So you have a little bit unusual story because you were working an office job. Many knife makers were coming from, a, like, a, being boiler makers and having the already gear ready in their shops. But you were working, a, you were, you were working an office environment. And how did you find yourself from that job to being a full-time knife maker? <laughs> how did the transition happen? Well, it happened over the course of a few years. Um, for those that don't know, my background actually was, um, well, initially when I first started working straight after work, I was working in pubs and clubs, um, so effectively hospitality. I went into the hotel industry for a little while um, and did that for actually about seven years after I left school. So I didn't, didn't really want to go and do a university degree. I had no real direction from that. My old man was in the Navy, um, and I couldn't be fucked getting into um, – well, actually, to be brutally honest, initially I actually I wanted to become a um, federal agent for the AFP. That, that was my goal. Unfortunately, in one of my earlier jobs, I broke my back. So I fucking – those plans of doing the, um, the policing, the FBI stuff, fell flat on its face pretty fucking quickly. And I had a couple of years of pretty shit existence, really, because I broke my back and had chronic pain. Anyone that's had a back injury and had experienced like sciatic nerve pain, I had that to the degree where I was like a fucking 80-year-old or 90-year-old man with fucking chronic arthritis and shit. And it was really shit. I ended up getting surgery, which fixed it up a bit, enough, enough to put me on the right track. And then I had to fucking reassess everything that I wanted to do in my life. So I ended up working in whatever fucking place I could get a job, which was hospitality for the most part. Shit jobs, shit pay, shit hours. But I was thankful because I had a fucking job and, you know, I was going along all right. Then I got a bit of a, 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 bit of a fucking opportunity to do a small contract in the public service in the federal government. It's meant to be a three-month contract just doing data entry. So I, my experience in computers was basically playing computer games. And we're talking real fucking old school, fucking get into MS-DOS, fucking load your, disc, load your game up from a cassette. People Doom. look up. Yeah, not a, but pre-Doom, man. <laughs> Return to Castle to Wolf, yeah. Wolfenstein. <laughs> Pre, that Commodore 64 fucking oh, shit going yeah, on. Oh, yeah, I remember. Where you'd, where you'd fucking load up your game on a cassette and go and do something for half an hour and come and find out that it hadn't loaded properly and start again. And it progressed a little bit, pro- progressed a little bit into, you know, semi-modern computing. But I had enough mouse about me to get in and fucking access files and all the rest of it. Anyway, long story short, got a three-month gig in the public sector um, because it was, I found that obviously the hours and the pay I thought were awesome. 
and I fucking ended up asking the right questions and doing the right thing and fell on my feet doing a certain program called SAP or SAP, which is used by the government. And yeah, you know, I just regarded myself, you know, as a pretty good worker, did the right thing because I'd worked in such shit jobs. I was very enthusiastic about doing the right thing in the, in the government job because I was th- thought I was very privileged to be in it. Anyway, three-month contract ended up being a 17-year career working on the SAP system, and I went from an end user up to a system administrator managing a team in the AFP when I was working there and sort of knew the ins and outs of a lot of that system. Still know it from what I understand when I talk to my colleagues. But, yeah, you know, like working that sort of job, you don't have a lot of creative outlet. So part of that was when I was when I was earning good money, I wasted a lot of money updating cars and stuff or upgrading cars. I was a mad Subaru nut. So I bought myself some old Subaru, turbo Subarus, and started fixing up bolt-on parts on them and fucking, you know, change turbos, change fucking intercoolers, change suspensions, change all this sort of shit. And um, you also go to the gym too, so like, so you can paint this <laughs> stereotype. The guy who goes to the gym jacks up the fucking Subarus. <laughs> I, I was I used to be a member of a few forum groups, Subaru car club groups, and we had this national meetup with one of them. And I I knew these guys online, and back in those days, all forum based, none of these fucking online videos and shit like that. And I remember the first meetup we did was in Sydney, and I met finally got a chance to meet these guys face to face. And back in the day, I used to fucking I used to lift pretty heavy weights. I used to be full on into weightlifting. One of my office jobs, we were actually our office was situated above a supplement the supplement store. When I first met you, your email address was steroid munching freak. I've never forgotten that. Yeah, <laughs> it still is. I've still got that email. I used to type that in to send the invoices, and I was like, "Who is this fucking clown?" <laughs> this fucking clown. <laughs> oh, look up, yeah. look up my bicep, bro. <laughs> Do you even lift, bro? <laughs> so, yeah, one of my mates and I, when we were in the public service, I used to fucking lift pretty big weights and stuff, and we were situated above a, a supplement store in the fucking office. And my mate and I cottoned on that if you went online, you could get big discounts if you bought bulk products from online. And we went down to this supplement store below us and we were like, do you price match? And the guy's like, yeah. And we went, all right, I want this. And I handed him this big fucking list of shopping from online. And the guy was like, oh, shit, I'm going to go broke. But we visited him quite often and it was very funny. So... Yeah, powerlifting and that sort of stuff in the day. Steroid munching freak, which still exists. <laughs> <laughs> and then that days was my car club day. So I've gone up and met up with these guys that uh, I'd never met personally. And they're all looking at me. Fuck, you know, I was like six foot. Well, I still am about six foot two. But I, was probably 100 and, I was probably about 120 kilos of like fairly lean fucking not quite steroidal muscle. Come on, yes. come on. You, you're, you're feet tall above all the other ones. Oh, yeah. You're I felt like it. All the other guys. Come on. Don't yeah. say it. I was. I was like seven foot three. That's fine. Mm-hmm. No, so it was quite funny. Yeah. So big into the car club stuff, but we were looking at where I got into knife making. So big into the car club stuff, that's all I seemed to do was, you know, modified cars, bolt-on parts. And as it happened, I became very, very stereotypical to my wife he said to me pretty much every birthday, Christmas, whatever, what car part do you want for your car? And there was this one time that I'd looked up and found that there was a knife making course not far from me. And I was like, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to fucking, 
piece for me car. I want, I want to go and do this knife making course. And my wife's like, you want a what? I want, yeah, I want to go and make this fucking knife making course. So she's looking a bit weird. Who do you want to stab? She would have said, like they fucking a lot of people. Yeah. Who do you want to stab? Yeah, they do. No, so she was good about it, and uh, that was out at Thurl Valley Forge, and I signed up and 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 went out and did a course, and you know met Karim, and him and I got along pretty well, and you know did the course, and really just found that that hands-on process of actually making something from start to finish just gelled, man. Like I was fucking hooked straight away. I'd done things in the past, like. When I was going through school, college, I did art-based studies as well, so I was always good with my hands in that regard. A bit of creativity on that side. But I just found that that knife-making thing, just getting that piece of steel heating up and fucking hammer it away, you know, two two days in a, in a course and coming out at the end of it with two fucking what I thought was like the most awesome fucking knives in the world. Man, I was addicted straight away. Like, that was it. And I've got to remember, at that stage... I was working a pretty good job in the public service. I had expendable income. I decided pretty much right at that stage, fucked if I'm spending any more money on bolt-on parts for my car. I'm going to go and buy myself an anvil. I'm going to buy myself a forge. I'm going to buy myself a fucking grinder. And this is going back again, like, fuck, like eight years ago. There wasn't a lot of shit around. So my grinder, actually, I started off with a fucking... Um, Orbital, uh, sorry, not an orbital, a belt sander, which was just a fucking joke. And then I got a second-hand 2x72 grinder, which was grossly underpowered, but much better than what I started with. And then progressed from there to eventually getting my Radius Master, which was like the fucking be-all and end-all. And then progressing through time, Gamaco and that came up with the fucking new grinder. So I jumped in pretty early on that too. Yeah, and look, you know. Went from modifying cars and driving around like a fucking revet idiot to making knives and going around like a fucking stabby idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you kept wanting wanting same, Kev. I'm glad you kept wanting same. That I was an idiot, yeah. So uh, you've got to have consistency, don't you? Yeah, I became obsessed though, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to it. When I was when I was in my office job. And I wasn't at the management level. Uh, I was, I was, well, I have to say, without, you know, the fucking hand on the horn or anything like that, but I was actually very good at what I did on the SAP system. So I was a business analyst and a, and a configuration guy, and I was very good at what I did. And it drove me to be even better at my job because then I could spend all my spare time drawing fucking knife pictures. I remember at my desk at work, I'd open up my top drawer of my desk at work, and it'd be like, I don't know, 50 to 100 fucking knife pictures that I'd drawn out, things that I wanted to make, you know. It was an obsession. Like, I'd, I'd work really hard to get my job done really fast and then sit there and spend 20 minutes just fucking, like, drawing knife pictures and stick them in my drawer and come back to them later and, like, mm. you know, just go, fuck yeah, that's fucking, that's the best knife ever, which, in hindsight, was, like, just a piece of shit, really, but... <laughs> So the guys that aren't used to you and, and know you from the scene in Australia, like, you know, our international listeners and, and the guys in Australia who are just sort of starting out, explain your style and sort of what it was when you started to what it is today. How's it changed? Oh, well, look, you know, your, your influence comes from the people that you learn from, really. And so at the time, like I said, I did a course over at Thawa and Karim, Karim had had the run the Thawa Forge and now the Cup of Come Along place out there as well. It was a very organic style of knife making. And, you know, 
the blades the blades were just all about you know organic shapes handles were designed to fit your hands and there was a little bit of that artistic side of it in there in terms of spaces making sort of contrasting spaces sort of setups and stuff like that which was all cool and i really enjoyed that sort of stuff but then as i started to develop my own ideas and my own style with it it's now sort of started to progress progress to become i have to say like a lot more a lot cleaner a lot in one regard a lot more simplified in what i do but aiming for a much cleaner finish and a much cleaner approach to the design and a much more functional design as well so you sort of start out you know your, your first sort of buck you know realistically 20 30 knives are all freaking crazy i want to make something mad i want to make something big fucking bowie knife i want to make a big fucking rambo chopper i want to do this want to do that and you've always got these ideas you know this is going to be the next coolest thing and when you get through that period of realizing okay they're cool but they're not that cool and then you decide okay i want to start refining what i'm good at that's where i've gone in that direction now so my approach now is more in the clean functional good geometry good fit and finish usable knives oh cool so kev let's talk about the moment so i'm going off the off the our usual questionnaire list and i'm going to ask a question so kev let's talk about the moment i've met you in person the first knife show you probably exhibited by yourself or the first knife show you attended sydney knife show yeah so you and i had been in contact probably like i guess for well, you? i'd say i'd say yeah i'd say sort of infrequently to begin with and then you know reasonably frequently for for a reasonable amount of time which i always thought was pretty cool because you know i'm just a fucking dude making knives i'm, I'm an unknown flying under the radar i still like to think i do that but i'm, I'm, I'm probably nowadays a little more known but uh, but the no, coolest you, thing but was you you were working for taro valley back then you were yeah i was teaching for thorough valley forge i i and we'll get into that because there's a question in in the yeah. listeners question that we'll get to with that but yeah i was teaching at thorough valley forge and at the first sydney knife show that i went to that was at everly works uh in sydney i actually had a table within the the thorough valley forge um booth and so that was an agreement that karim and i came up with and i'd met this fella talked to this fella named mert tansu and, and we'd had a fair few conversations and i do i still vividly remember mert coming up to that table and introducing himself and i have to say i was pretty fucking stoked and probably a little fucking intimidated by the fact that he, you know he's like six foot fucking two plus six foot Six, well, six foot. Okay, I'm taller than Mert, but maybe I felt a bit smaller because he's a little intimidating. He's quite hairy, Turkish fella, accent. Maybe not what I'd fucking imagine, but I, honestly, no, no, no shit. I was fucking absolutely fucking stoked to actually meet Mert, and I'm pretty sure if he remembers back to that day, it, it's the time in history that really fucking changed, I guess, the lives for both of us in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I've met Mert, I fucking, I remember going home, telling my wife, oh, I fucking met, I met the guy that I've been talking to online for like fucking 12 months. It's fucking unreal, you know? At, and at that, uh, moment, at that moment, you remember, you already sent me a bag of set night. 
Uh, <laughs> that's you, right. can't, you can't plug in this shit. I'm like, hey man, I'm I'm happy to pay. Like, do you have the set night? Like, yeah, coming, coming, bro, coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing it's a good thing to remember because it's it's funny that you know I, I'm the same now when people contact me about stuff it's like just yeah I've got it just fucking take it I don't want anything from it a thank you is enough with that sort of stuff but it's funny that you know how many years ago was that for 2016 2016 Everly that was 2014 you dumb fucks Ah, uh, two there. Fuck. Yeah. Listen to you. Oh, 2014. You're like the yeah, fucking well, time was. 2014. <laughs> and Corin, I, I met you. You're in the corner of the Gameco, and you were you were knackered. You look like you're fucked. You were so tired. You were so stressed. You're like, well, I came in. I'm like, I'm like, hi. You're like, what do you want? You want tongs? You want steel? I got steel. Hey, Corin, this is Matt. We've been talking online. Yeah, nice to meet you. You got steel. I'm like, Dan, it took you a second. Like, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> that show was, uh, back in those days, I was basically building the business myself whilst running the business, whilst nobody really wanted to get involved in knife making. I didn't have a team back then. And it was, I was running the show. Me and Ke- and Kev, uh, me and Keith were, yeah, were collaborated on the show with a, uh, event company and stuff and fucking yeah it was just a it was just such a stressful time <laughs> stressful stressful time i'll never forget it because i wasn't as far as uh, it was just a very bad time for me for my family for everything i i'll never forget that i was i was a different person back then i was not cool i was fucked. you were stressed as yeah. fuck you were stressed as fuck and i'm like corn you've been talking over the internet like then it took you a second like yeah Oh yeah, man. How been? How you been? I'm like, yeah, I'm good, man. Like, then you were saying, ah, oh, it's been flat out, and then you went back to that mode, like, you need to steal anyone? <laughs> that was back in the days of Australian Blade forums. Yep. We were doing everything on Australian Blade forums, so that's a funny story that as well because we used to we started on Australian Blade forums, and fucking now we're on Facebook and Facebook they won't let you promote or do anything because you we sell weapons so. I'm having a blue with them, and I've got a. You guys need to know. I've got a. Um, I've got a, a marketing specialist giving us a call tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. So let's see how we go. Yeah, nice. Well, well, as a, as a weapon stealer, as a yes. weapon stealer. <laughs> yeah, no, we we're going off the tangent. Kev, second question is then 2016. Fourteen. No, that was 2014, but 2016 <laughs> we were. We had Dimitri between us and the first one that we did the Rose Hill Garden. That's how we got close. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, look, like the, the first one in Everly, man, honestly, it was a very profound moment to fucking meet you. Honestly, it was. And it, it, it's like that catalyst that set everything in motion. And then, like I said, the, the one which we did at Rose Hill Gardens and we had Dimitri between us, at, uh, I still remember it was very fucking fun. Like, very fun times. For me, going to a knife show is all about being at the knife show. My main priority for being at a knife show is to catch up with my fucking mates that I only see at knife shows and others that I see outside of knife shows. And it's a funny thing. I don't know if there's a question on the fucking the podcast group about it, but it's it, a knife show. If you go into a knife show and you're looking at a knife show with, right, I'm here to fucking make money. I've got to make money, and it's, it's the fucking wrong thing to do. Honestly, it's the wrong thing to do. 
change your mindset and and look at a knife show as an opportunity to catch up with the people that you like and and talk about your wares to people and things will evolve from that honestly that's a really good way to do it because people don't buy the knife they buy the package they buy the maker as well yeah and if you're there being relaxed and you've got a relaxed attitude and you're having a laugh and a joke they'll buy you as well and that's where you that's where you win yeah my customer base is especially with shows is based on return customers and a lot of the time i end up talking to people about stuff that's not even knife related for ages well and truly too long and you know they walk off and i feel happy because I just fucking, in those situations of knife shows and stuff, I come out of my sort of introverted self into the fucking extrovert. And I fucking love that situation. And I talk to people about heaps of stuff that's not even related to knives. And I've had guys that have come back literally fucking two years later. And I remember the face, but not the name. And then they come back and buy a knife off me. And it's the start of a relationship has happened two years before. Yeah. So Mert and I now... And it may be a little bit of influence on my part. Bert and I now, for most knife shows that we go to, tend to be next to each other, which is good and bad because (laughs) when we're busy and things are fucking flat out, it's awesome because you've got someone that you trust next to you and if shit's hitting the fan and you've got more than you can cope with literally in terms of people at your table... You can fucking keep an eye, and you, you not you can, you do keep an eye on the person next to you. And you can say, mate, like, you know, when it quietens down, you say, Mert, I'm going to go for a piss, mate. Look after my table. And you can feel reasonably comfortable that things are going to go all right. The other flip side of that is if you're next to someone that you trust and you like, and say someone comes up to my table and they're like, uh, you know, and I have that variety of kitchen knives and hunting knives on there. And someone comes up to me and they're like, Oh, yeah, look, your, your kitchen knives look really nice, but I'm after something that's a really high-performance knife. I just go, oh, fuck, just one table to the left of us, mate. Go and have a look at Mert's gear or, you know, other people down the line here. But if you want something really high-end, that's the person you want to look at. And Mert does the same thing. If people come up to his table and they're like, you know, oh, it's kind of a bit above what I want, he might flick them to me. And, you know, and you, you sort of help each other out in that regard which is a good thing. Let's talk about people that influence you over the years, mate. Yeah, right. Eh? Well, obviously, in the start of my knife-making, Karim Haddad was a big influence. You know, and I'm grateful and appreciative of all the time that he gave me, um, the mentoring that he gave me, the influence to my style that's still there a little bit. So he was one of the first people in that group that, you know, inspired me to do better, make better knives. When I first started, after I did my course at Karim, and I said I was, I was addicted to knife-making straight up, he was kind enough to give me some time. Like I hit him up and basically said, man, I'm, I'm addicted to this. I want to do better. I want to make better knives and all that. So I kind of you know, had the advantage of him being such a short distance away from me. I got to spend a fair bit of time over, especially when he was running the other classes. He let me sort of come over and hang out. And I volunteered, you know, oh, let me sweep the floors and fucking you know, clean stuff up and, and prep the steel for you. And that way I'm not just bludging off you as, as we go through. And I spent a fair amount of time with Karim doing that. And eventually through that process, and this again leads into one of the user questions on the on the podcast page, is I spent a lot of time hanging out with Karim, assisting in him running his classes. And then he gave me the opportunity to actually start running classes as well, which, you know, that happened over the course of a couple of years, really. 
Um, but he was a big influence on my design there. One of the other people that was uh, influential at that stage and, and still is, uh, is Sean McIntyre. You know, Sean's a master smith. He was, or he is undoubtedly one of, in my view, one of the, the best knife makers going around. I love his styling, especially in the in the hunting knives, which is what I do like making a lot of. So Sean was a big influence. And then progressing further through that, uh, I did a course with Bill Burke in Sydney for the ABS Intro to Bladesmithing course. And with that, there were a few blokes that I really liked in the Australian knife making scene. Keith Flutter, Bruce Barnett, Tobal, so those guys. And they were all sort of mates with Bill Burke. And when I went up to do, do that course, I was like, oh, you know, who's this, who's this Bill Burke fella? I'll, I'll fucking uh, judge him on whether he's a good bloke rather than just because he's a fucking mastersmith. But the advantage he had going for that was some of the guys that I looked up to in Australian knife making already thought that he was a pretty good bloke. So mm-hmm. he taught me a lot in that course that we did, and he was a nice guy and invited me to go over to America. Um, you know, basically at the end of one of our conversations, he's, he's, he said, look, if you're ever going to come over to America, fuck, you're welcome to stay at my place. You're welcome to do this and that with the other fellas. And, yeah, look, you know, I, I took that on board and through that opportunity to go overseas, I've met fucking countless people that have an influence on my work, you know. So some of those guys, Shane Taylor, who's another master smith, Shane just does the fucking craziest, awesome fucking like art-based knife making that you're going around. Rick Dunkley, I had an opportunity to go to Rick Dunkley's place and do a line lock course. Um, kind of like your fucking barrel knife stuff, Corrin. I've got five or six line lock knives, various stages of completion in my, my workshop. <laughs> I haven't finished one yet. I've gone close. I've pretty fucking gone pretty close to finishing one of those knives already, but you know that's an influence there as well. And I've just met so many people that you know, I can't pinpoint one person in particular that sort of influences me or or sort of you know I take so much off now. But I've had exposure to a shitload of people that fucking uh, you know just encourage me to do that 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 little bit better in what I'm doing. Sure. And these guys, do you want to tell? Like I know them all, but. Maybe we should just let people know who they are, uh, like Rick Dunkley and, and Burke, and then like give them a shout-out. Give them a, some social media channels so people can follow them. Well, the Aussie guys, obviously, Bruce Barnett, Toeball, which is fucking, uh, what's his head? <laughs> Too much red wine. Uh, no, Toeball, Toeball Knives. Sinclair, Mark Sinclair. Mark Sinclair, Bruce Barnett, so Barnett Knives. Bruce Dot Barnett. Sinclair Knives, so Mark Sinclair, Stink. Stink. Also, before we forget, Sinclair does great timber in Australia. One of the, he does the best oh, stabilized yeah. timber in Australia, Sinclair Timber. He's got two Instagram accounts. One is Sinclair Knives Australia, and the other is Sinclair Stabilized Timber. One of the other guys that fucking was funny to stay with share a room with was ali bastion and i met ali through Tobal at adelaide knife show at the arca bar and ali was all he, he still is a fairly quiet sort of fellow but makes some amazing fucking flipper knives which were not really in my interest and technically even these days still aren't but i fucking love the stuff they're doing but i shared a room with ali over at fucking blade show that's probably a drink for someone on the drinking game too 
me mentioning Blacho. But I stayed with Ali at Blacho. He shared a room with me. And, yeah, you, you spend a couple of days with someone in a hotel room and you get to know them a whole lot more than you ever would have. So, yeah, Ali's now fucking very high on my fucking list of just fucking top blokes. So Ali Bastion, Bastion Knives. I got a lot of time for Ali. I went and spent a couple of days in his workshop yep. a few years ago. And um, he lives in uh, Mount Gambia. Yep. Uh, well, he did at the time. I think he's moved now. But Ali is just a, he's a great guy. I got all the time in the world for that guy. Yeah. And his, his work's exceptional. Bastion Knives. Once we're over this coronavirus shit, I'm going to head down and hang out with Ali for a couple of days. He gave me an opportunity to, or an offer to go down and hang out because of the folding knife stuff. Just remember your mates when you do, mate. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah, right. No worries. <laughs> well, it's a fucking long trip, so I probably need someone to come down and keep me company. Mate, the way to do it, we'll drive down, we'll do Adelaide Knife Show, and we'll drive across. Fuck yeah, let's do that. Do it in November. Then we'll go over to Tobol, who's in Portland in Victoria. Yeah, he's an hour, two hours away, that's yeah. it. You're going to do a fucking hammer in my place, you cabbages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Drink up, Brett. <laughs> drink up, drink up. Okay, okay, so we've gone through some of the, there's some of the Aussie guys, and then obviously Bill Burt. Bill Burke Knives or Burke Knives, whichever he goes under. Fuck, man. The guys that I met in America were just fucking amazing. Yeah, you're going to fucking have a bit of a laugh here. Bubba Crouch. Oh, fuck. Love Bubba. He's a great guy. <laughs> Bubba is just, like, fucking awesome. Bub- Bubba's on my list to, get, list to get a barrel knife one day, actually. Oh, well, you fucking got to do that. Yeah, well, yeah. it's a, it's one of those things. Like, if I wasn't strapped for cash at the moment, I'd be... Um, uh, at the one that I'm making now, I kind of had the earmarked for him, but I won't be going to Blade, so I won't see him. And I need the cash, so this one will go elsewhere. But yeah, Bubba will get one. He's he's fucking he's done a deal with me. So yeah, Shane Taylor as well. Shane Taylor knives. He's a he's another one of the master smiths over there. We've met. He lives up in Montana. Eric Fritz, who's a journeyman smith. Eric Eric's just a fucking like you know he, he's a fucking awesome guy. He'll hate me saying it. He's an awesome guy. He's when I was traveling the first year with all these guys, I was like the new guy. Fucking was feeling pretty fucking like. A little bit out of place because I was a new guy traveling around with these fellas. And everyone that I met in America offered me nothing but the fucking absolute 100% most fucking awesome and welcoming fucking um, attitude to a, to a person that was, you know, new to their scene or coming along with these other guys. And I think it just, again, goes through who you know at the time. Um or who I was traveling around with at the time. So, yeah, like, uh, the last trip I met Josh Smith, who was, like, the world's youngest master smith. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he was he was at the hammer in at Rick Dunkley's place. I've been thinking we should get Josh. Josh has been pretty high on my list of people to come out for a symposium. Yeah, if we can get him out, he's a good bloke. He's a nice guy. I mean, you know, again, one of the key guys, which is from that podcast, Jeff Fader. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff and I communicated online, similar to me and Mert. We communicated online for ages, you know, just back and forth, like what you're doing, nice knife, mate. I always felt a bit, not intimidated, but just felt like I was, you know, a bit, I don't know, it was a bit weird messaging people to say you like their knives. You were like, oh, is this guy just going to go, oh, yeah, it's another fucking fanboy. So, but Jeff and I built up a pretty good rapport online over a reasonable amount of time. And when I got to meet him in person, 
it seriously was it was as profound a moment as when I got to meet Mert. Like honestly, you build up a relationship with these people online, and then you meet these people, and I was just like, "Fuck yeah, this this guy's fucking." I like I like this guy. He's fucking good. Um, so Jeff and I, Jeff and I continue our online relationship, and it's funny which shit we get up to. I met Mareko, Mumasi Fire Arts. I've met Mareko. He's a nice guy. Again, we we spend a fair bit of time sort of back and forth every now and then on um, Instagram, especially. Look, the list, come, the list come goes on, on. Come on, say it. You beat him. You beat him in arm wrestling. <laughs> like, come on, I, I come on, I wrestled Mareko and I won. Um, All right? Okay. Mareko's been practicing ever since, so you've got to watch it next time you go there. The other guy that I met, um, which was funny, because we mate Beer Rad, Brad Heathcote, Heathcote Knives, is a big fucking Trollsky fan. And I met Trollsky overseas as well. I met Trollsky. And Trollsky and I fucking had a bit of a fucking funny sort of almost standoff situation. And we took photos giving Beer Rad the bird. Like, suck shit, we've met each other and you haven't. But, no, I still keep in touch with, with Trollsky every now and then online. Um, when you get to go over to an event overseas and you have all these, like, you know, world-known knife makers, it's a fucking funny thing, you know. And I, yeah, again, it's just there's so many people that I've met that have certain influences on what I do, whether it's in the design style or whether it's just, like, yeah, look at this fucker. I'll, I'll fucking keep up with him. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll uh, wrestle that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, like, I, I totally get where you're coming from from the show perspective because these days, that's why I love it so much. It's beforehand it was big stress, but now it's I've got a team, the people there, and I can sort of relax a bit more. Yeah. One of the Viking fuckers over there, Eric Markman, he was funny. Like, I met these Viking guys. And and just just the funny shit that, that was related to into that in terms of those guys, more to do with arm wrestling and fucking all that sort of crazy stuff. And that's what's their what's their Instagram, Kev? Uh, well, fuck, I don't know, man. Let me get on the fucking Instagram for fuck's sake. I'm prepared. Eric Markman, Eric Markman, he's a Dutch journeyman. E R I K underscore Markman. He he makes honestly some fucking really kick-ass knives. He's a really good bloke, funny as fuck. Like, when we met each other overseas, it was really funny. He does a lot of integral hunters and stuff like that. Really talented guy, and I'm sure that when he ends up going for his Mastersmith stuff, that he's hopefully not going to have too much issue with that. But, you know, really good bloke. So that's that's one of the things there. Like I said, Trollsky, everyone knows fucking Trollsky. He's a fucking madman. If you don't know Trollsky, then you're not fucking... Living. We all grew up when Trollsky was the big man on YouTube for knife making. That's the funny thing. I never fucking knew about his YouTube shit. And when I was going over there, my mate Beer Rad, Brad, was like, oh, you've got to meet Trollsky. And he's like, Trollsky's bigger than you. Oh, fuck. I'll fucking see about that. And, you know, I still think, you know, Trollsky, I doubt you're listening, but if you are, I'm still bigger than you, you fucker. <laughs> yeah. Shane Taylor knives, all one word. Shane Taylor knives. You got to go and check out Shane's stuff. He, he's a real good bloke. Shane and I shared a room in one of the knife shows that was run by Nick, Rick Dunkley at Big Sky in uh, Montana last year. Montana. That was quite funny. I'll tell you a little story about that. 
Shane and I are sharing this room. Everyone in America carries weapons, right? So everyone in America carries a gun. So Shane comes into the room. We've, we've been on the Terps. We've been out to dinner. We've been out to this bar. We've drunk a lot of alcohol. We go back to the room and Shane takes out his gun and he goes, oh, I'm just going to put my weapon up here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no worries. I'm desensitised to a certain stage. Anyway, he goes, would you like a whiskey? I'm like, yeah, sure, let's, let's get a whiskey. So Shane pours this whiskey for me and it's, it's, it's a fucking big whiskey, right? We're not talking, a, it's not a shot. It's like a four-finger fucking shot. A proper whiskey. And we're drinking away, a proper whiskey. We're drinking away, we're having a chat. And all of a sudden, Shane's, Shane pauses in his conversation and he leans in a little bit and he looks at me and he goes, Kev, I'm going to give you 50 bucks and I want you to go downstairs and I want you to get yourself something real pretty. <laughs> and I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was honestly paused mid-sip with my whiskey looking at this guy and I'd been set up because all these stories I'd been given about Shane were a little bit left field about sharing a room with him and so I'm like I'm drinking this whiskey knowing that he's got a fucking gun up on the fucking thing just going oh shit <laughs> but as it happens he was actually kidding he didn't give me 50 bucks to buy something real pretty I was quite let down by the whole thing. But yeah. So when you rocked up in your teddy and your yeah. fucking thong, G string. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was his face like? Hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast because my fucking plan would I'll be sending him a link. My plan my plan would be that when when the borders open and we finally get to travel with some normality again and we go over to Blade Show and if I share a room with Shane again, I actually want to pre purchase like some fucking frilly laced fucking thing, <laughs> and be in that you room, lying on the bed when Shane walks in and goes, "Hey, big boy, you owe me fifty bucks," <laughs> <laughs> and just see what the reaction is. Ugh. The way our dollars going, that's like a hundred bucks for us. Oh fuck yeah! Oh fuck, don't remind me. You've sold yourself for way less. Come Curiosity on. got me the other day and had a look, and we're up to, I think we're up to like 62 cents in the dollar. And it was like, fuck me. It was 58 cents last time I looked. Yeah. Yeah. We were down to 50s in 58, 50 around that. So we've come up a bit. Let's not talk about depressing shit. Let's get into, <laughs> let's get into the questions that everybody's been waiting for. We've had enough alcohol now that uh, we should have loosened up some. Quite. I had one question before I go on the, the questions were submitted. Oh, sorry, Mert. Right. Go for your life. Right. Kev, I know after working a couple of years in Tarva, you became a full-time knife maker. I'm sure as a fellow knife maker, fellow full-time knife maker, I can relate that it was a stressful moment. But what was the moment as a full-time knife maker you realized that you made it? You made it as a knife maker. When did you get that feeling? <laughs> what are you fucking... Oh, hang on a second. I'm watching Karen here. He's pissing himself laughing. <laughs> when you realised Roe had a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> You've got when, this, mate. When, when Karen when gave Roe a fucking mug that said, behind every full-time knife maker oh. is a full-time... Partner, a partner with a full-time job. With the real job. A real job. With a real job. Real job. <laughs> uh, anyway. Nah, look, okay. 
So let's not bring the mood down, but look, a serious part of my transition, and we're going to go in and we're going to start looking at a part of this answer is going to be a part of the answer to one of the listeners' questions, I'm sure. I worked for 17 years in the public sector, and I was a professional that ran a systems-based job. So I was looking after the SAP system, SAP, which is a worldwide finance and HR system. The Australian government has a, you know, a template of that system, which is used in most, if not all, government departments in Australia, federal government. I spent 17 years in that system and spent a lot of my time investing in learning that and getting up to the stage, like I said, where I was, I was actually a professional in it. I was very good at what I did. Unfortunately, in one of my last roles in that, I, through both personal things and work-related things, was just fucking overwhelmed and overstressed. And I had some, I had some absolute fucking shit staff to deal with. I have no shame in saying it. They were absolute cabbages, cunts. And dealing with the people and dealing with my job and dealing with everything that was in there because I was working. Like I, had a, I had a fucking, you know, I was a very well-paid person for what I was doing, a very high-level job. And I had a hell of a lot of fucking high finance-related levels that I dealt with. So, you know, I, I had authority to deal with fucking $20 million single transactions as an example of what I was dealing with. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a light-hearted fucking everyday thing. There was a lot of stress behind everything that I did on that system. And then managing a team uh, which had a couple of bad eggs in it, unfortunately, I, I was, you know, I became susceptible to stress. And long story short, I actually suffered a nervous breakdown in that role. So I, I basically had a situation where my body fucking stopped functioning as it should. And when I went and saw my GP, very worried about things, got checked for heart attacks, all the rest of it, uh, came clear and realised that it was it was a stress-based thing and that I, had, I, I actually had a nervous breakdown. So more or less my brain decided that it was going to stop me going into a bad environment, which was work, which was my government job, which was dealing with a uh, high-stress, high-pressure situation along with some fucking feral staff. So I, I had the fortune of having a lot of leave available for me and a bit of bit of good backup from my, my boss at the time. So I took time off that job basically to clear my head and get myself back where I wanted to be, which was you know, a healthy mindset, healthy body. And through that time as well, having that time off, I sort of focused more on the knife making. And, you know, quite a few months into it, when I realised that I'd relaxed a lot, I wasn't, I wasn't being a, a, an absolute shithead myself. You know, stressed, fucking horrible, angry person was me no longer. I was actually becoming more of a nice person and realised it as well, which is a big thing. And I decided, you know, I had 12 months. I took 12 months off work. And it was about three months into it, I stopped stressing about the whole shit. I've taken time off work and I'd had this nervous breakdown uh, which is not a not something that you know, your Aussie manly bloke wants to ever admit to in encountering. But when I about three months into that time off and was having a conversation with my wife and she was sort of saying how much more she liked me because I was no longer coming home 
fucking stressed out of my brain and angry from work and thinking about work, I started to relax a bit and then focusing a bit more on the full-time knife-making side of things. And I got to about two months out of that decision to go back to work and um, had a had a big fucking deep talk with my wife, which is funny because it, it does go back to that coffee mug, the renowned coffee mug that Corin sells, which is um, I said to my wife, if I don't go back to this fucking stressful office job, and I try and make a go of becoming a full-time knife maker, can we fucking survive if I fail? And I was putting it out there straight away. My expectation in, in one regard was, you know, looking at the failure side of things ahead of anything else. And she was like, look, you know, we're all right. We're, we're financially good. We're in a position where we can, we can make a go of this. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out, you've got the skill base to go either a back to the public sector do what you do or b something which i would have preferred which is go back and say work for bunnings or somewhere like that so yeah i rang my boss fucking two months out from going back to work and i said listen dude i got some bad news for you and he said to me you're not coming back are you and i went i'm not coming back man so we went through the process of that finalizing of my work and i have to admit i've fucking stressed out holy shit i had a fucking good paying job i loved what i did until the point that it broke me i i then decided fuck this i can't i can't go back to that um i was in i was admitted to hospital at once at one stage for basically having heart attack signs and i thought there's no fucking way i'm going back to this shit I'll fucking die at my desk, young, at a fucking at a fucking desk. Why? That's fucking shit. So I took the plunge. When I first left, I still worked over at Thawa Forge, which was, you know, fantastic. And again, appreciate Karim for his fucking faith in me for being a part of that. And I taught over there a couple of classes a month, whatever it was that he gave me. And it came to a point in time where... I kind of wanted something different. I, 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 I believed in myself enough that I wanted to take on this role of my own business. The teaching was something I absolutely fucking loved. And, um, you know, I'd built up through the process that said that before. A couple of years sweeping the floor, helping Karim out to doing courses with a small amount of people to then doing four plus people with Karim for a number of years. And I just had a fucking longing to do, to do my own thing, to bring it back, to do it smaller, to do it, you know, in my words, better, different. I wanted I wanted to do something that was different. So <clears throat> Karim and I parted ways. And I guess, Mert, when you're saying about it with that full-time maker thing, when did I know that I had it? was when I got my first booking for my first class from my own workshop. And that, that was the moment with me that I was like, hey, you know what? I think I can fucking do this. And it was from a Sydney knife show, the first Sydney knife show that we had at Rose Hill Racecourse. There was a, as there always is when we're there, there's a fucking gluten-free show downstairs from us. Yes. And I had uh, a lovely lady, Heather, come up to my table and she'd been around and she talked to a lot of people and she came up to my table and she's like, do you, I talked to her and her mother for a while and she's like, 
do you do courses? At that stage, I had nothing set up. My workshop was set up for me. And I went, yeah, yeah, I do. I do courses from my own workshop. But I don't quite have I said, but I don't quite have everything set up at the moment, so I'll be ready to go in about six weeks' time. And they're like, Oh, awesome. Because I've got a friend of mine and I that would like to come and do a course with you. We like what knives you're making and blah blah blah. And we'll come and do it with you. And then all of a sudden I was like, Fuck me. So <laughs> I had to get a second anvil, had to buy a second grinder off Corrin, had to buy a fucking like 20 pairs of fucking tongs, set my workshop up so it wasn't just for me. And those guys came down and did that course with me and had an absolute blast and they've been back since. But that that time when I agreed that, yeah, I'm going to do a course for you was probably the moment in my time that I really regarded as being a full-time maker because I was setting myself up for myself. Like I was on my own. It was like, I have nothing to go back to. The safety net's not there any longer. It's me. That's a fair call, mate. It's a fair call. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's a question on, uh, I'm just looking for it, actually, uh, on the group. We've got a bunch of questions here to plough through. Um, and the first one's from Ben Hayhurst, who says, what made you feel qualified to teach smithing? Yeah. I went through and read these questions leading into the podcast, and that was one of the ones that really sort of stuck out in, in, in terms of everything else that was asked because there's a lot of guys that teach knife making that I don't actually think, personally, I don't think they're, you know, in, in, in the loose word, the, the loose use of the term qualified, there are a lot of guys teaching that I don't think are qualified to teach. So if we take a step back to when I was in the public sector and I was doing my systems administration and my business analyst and my fucking subject matter expert of the SAP system, I actually got my Cert 4 in training and assessment and developed and ran training classes for use end users in the SAP system. So my job was to go through and teach people how to appreciate or how to actually get through the most fucking boring screen-based fucking process that you could possibly imagine. Boring for them, I really enjoyed what I did. So one of my passions, um, and this came about, I was working at um, parliamentary services at Parliament House. Our budget was slashed by fucking millions of dollars, literally fucking millions of dollars between one financial year and the next, and the area that I worked in, our budget was just fucking decimated. So we used to get contracted people in to do the teaching. And I said to my boss, oh, fuck, I reckon I can do that. Let me go out and get a Cert 4 in training and assessment and I'll, I'll run the classes. And they're like, oh, shit, okay. Initiative in the government. How the fuck did you last as long as you did? <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah, okay, let's go for it. And, you know, they invested their time and money in me. And I actually went and did a, I sat in on a couple of courses with the contracted trainer. And then I ran some courses based off of their, their, their training methods. And they came back and told my boss, yeah, look, fuck, no worries. You, you've got a perfect person here for the fucking job. So I went and got my Cert 4 in training and assessment through CIT. And I ran training and assessment for fucking 
five years in the government for the most boring fucking end user system ever that fucking everyone hated. But it was still my passion to fucking teach people. When that transition came about, when I was working for Karim or, you know, volunteering with Karim to learn more and take on more, subliminally he was giving me more and more fucking responsibility. And in the end, after, like I said, a couple of years, I was actually offered to start running classes for him. So it came about, you know, with what made you feel qualified to teach smithing. In, in the very start of that, Karim had it made me feel like I was qualified to teach because I was running and assisting with running classes with him. I'd made a hell of a lot of knives. I knew how to forge 95% of the things that people threw at me. And more to the point, I knew how to correct or fix or preempt things going wrong. And I had a background in that training and assessment side of things. So I knew how to deal with people and, and come across to them. So it was taking that systems-based teaching and passion to something that was just more hands-on, which I was actually good at anyway. So that's that's what drew me into it. And I've got to say, like when I first started teaching, holy shit, did I feel out of my fucking depth. Motherfucker. Wow. I honestly, I think the first day that I went to teach a fucking class, and Krim's like, I teach... Four people at a time, let's let's get you on a class with two people. We'll do a few classes with two people, see how you go. That first class that I ran, and I honestly can't even fucking remember it, like the people that were on it or anything like that, that first class that I ran, I nearly fucking spewed on the way over. I was driving, I remember driving over and pulling up at the fucking bridge to go across the Thala, and the butterflies are in my stomach, man, I'm like, Fuck this. I just want to go home, throw the dinner over my head and forget this fucking whole thing. But I did it and succeeded at it. And then every fucking step that I did uh, like following that was just that fucking next step in like, yep, just fucking, I've got the skills. I've got the background. I just got to fucking believe in myself. So that would have been around 2013, 2014, something like that. Yeah, he's around 2014. Yeah, around that sort of stage. Yeah, right, six years ago. Yeah, and a, and a good couple of years into knife making. And when you think about a good couple of years in knife making back then, as I said, I was obsessed with, previously with modifying cars, and that obsession became making knives. So I wasn't making one knife, I wasn't making one knife every now and then, I was like every fucking spare minute of my fucking time was in my workshop making fucking knives. Like, just obsessed. Churning them out. Yeah, obsessed. Yeah. Mate, you all go? Hey, Corin. Just, just want to add something. So, I give classes and I see a lot of the other makers who give classes, but I'm just going to add why Kev is qualified to do classes. So, I look at Kev's knives. Whenever I look at Kev's knives, I know what to expect. His handles are going to be in proportion. His finish is going to be consistent. And also, when I look at the knives that the students made, when I look at those pictures, I can tell they look right. They're not very complex. They're not very like a hard 
some of them obviously with the with the people being new makers they're doing for the first time but i can tell there's a there's a plan behind it and they managed to they managed to execute it properly so there's no there's no license or there's no qualifications to give like who can teach a knife but i will give my fully i'll stand behind kev saying who can who is qualified to teach a teach people other other people's knife making yeah i will definitely say kev is fully qualified to teach people knife making from because when i look at the pictures i can tell he's taking people from all different kinds of skills or no skills he's making them put proper knives at the end of the day that's a proper knife making teaching skills i'll definitely sign up for it thanks man well, a big part in my classes as well is i want people that come into my class to experience all the highs and all the lows that there are in knife making and we're condensing a lot of work into two days all of the lows man oh yeah look seriously the fucking the highs and lows i'm not i'm not sugarcoating shit if people fuck up we'll, we'll get them through a big part of the teaching side of it is can you re can you recover someone from a fucking disaster yes have do you have that much experience that if something goes to the point where someone is almost going to fucking cry can you bring them out of that confidently and can you come and stay in my shed when i'm working <laughs> i've already taught you how to use a disc grinder you fucker <laughs> but it's in a, in a serious sense i i have people coming to me that have no experience in in anything physical they're, they're like i was they're computer-based it whatever whatever background they're from um, they come to me and and the biggest part of the teaching side of things is can you guarantee and i mean absolutely fucking guarantee that person's going to come out of that weekend feeling like they've achieved something and now my my job is to guide them through the system when necessary and preempt shit going wrong and and try to avoid fatal mistakes touch wood i've not had that situation yet the closest i've come and a reality to that fucking teaching thing is right it, it's it's i think i'm one of the fucking cheapest courses that you can do that's that's a fucking reality i'm not undercutting anyone but my overheads are as such that i can fucking offer the way that you describe it in business is the best value for money. Correct. You're not the cheapest. No, I offer the, I, I offer what I consider, correct as you were just saying, I offer what I consider to be one of the best value packages for learning knife making that there is around. And I've always said at knife shows as well, and pretty much anyone that comes to my table and asks about knife making courses, I will recommend you go and talk to um, the Mother Mountain Forge. You go and talk to Wayne Saunders. You go and talk to Thalwa Valley Forge. You go and talk to Everly Works. Look at what they do, and if you see if you see what they're doing is what you want to do, do the course with that person because that's what they're going to teach you. Like, I I don't give a shit, really, 
if someone comes to me and asks about knife making courses and I recommend someone else and I do a course with someone else, that's fucking awesome. Go and do that course. But when you come to me, if you like what I do, that's what I'm going to teach you. And I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to keep any secrets. It's not like fucking grandma's fucking meat sauce where you take three ingredients and don't give it to them. I'll teach you everything that I do. I'll teach you everything I do. And I, 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 I try and do it in a fun way. And, you know, people come along and I'll give them every opportunity. Like I said, I my goal is, and I'll say it to everyone that comes to my fucking workshop, you're going to have 90% ownership of the knife that you make. My job is to fucking stop you from fucking it up and to help out if we get to that stage where things do go a bit wrong. And that's natural because most of the time people it's their first time through. So the next question comes from a French man by the name of Paul Emmanuel Aristan. Paul is based in Queensland. And Paul says... And it's obviously a reference back to your uh, to your weightlifting days, Kev. Uh, do you bench press more than you squat? Well, the answer to that, Paul, thank you, Paul, for asking about that. <laughs> yes, that is actually, yes, I bench press more than I squat because, as I alluded to, unfortunately, I broke my back when I was not quite 19 years old. And therefore, in my weightlifting, squatting wasn't really something that I was able to do without placing myself at significant risk of injury. I did squat, but just low weights. I did leg press, which was, in hindsight, probably worse than squatting, but I leg press a hell of a lot. But, Paul, my um, my bench press maximum was 180 kilograms, which which is four plates either side of the bar. And I'll let you, I'll let you know that the bar bends a hell of a lot more before those fucking plates actually come off that that bench press. And uh, when I did it, I had a PT mate of mine come over and spot me, and I did 180 kilos, and I did three reps. And on the third rep, I put the bar down, and I stood up and I turned around and I looked at my mate, who fucking gave me some weird, shocked, disgusted fucking look on his face and said, you might want to go and look in the fucking mirror. <laughs> so I went into the fucking gym toilet and I popped a fucking vessel in my eye <laughs> and my entire fucking left hand side, left eyeball was like blood. It was blood red. Nice. So, yes, 180 kilo bench for three reps. Uh, my leg press maximum was a hundred and uh, sorry eight hundred and twenty kilos, which is a is a reasonable amount. But I didn't squat a lot because I have an extreme paranoia about fucking my back up again, which is not good. No. But mind you, most time my fucking back gets fucked up now. It's when I bend over to pick up a pair of shoes or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's some stupid fucking thing. So thanks, Paul. You fucking Sexy French man. Mert, you ready for the next one? You ready, Mert? Yes. Go for it. I don't know the question for me. Okay, well, the question is, what's... <laughs> what? Hang on, hang on. Oh, hang on, hang on. One second. Oh, One you second. fucking oh, cabbage. Go on, you cabbage. What did he think we were doing tonight? Like, just fucking... Like, we've talked about it all day. He thought he was just having a... 
He thought he was masturbating down in the fucking garage. This is going to come up in his performance review. His camera's off. <laughs> oh, fuck you. What do you consider to be your strengths and weaknesses? And why do you think you'll be a good for fit for this job? We told you to skip that we, one, you fuck. Give him a shout out uh, too, mate. Timmy Ford. Give him a shout out. Uh, it, Gareth John. Gareth John. It's a good one. Do we need Ian Ronald or we go the next one? Gareth John. Which one? Under Timmy Ford. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Previous replies, you fucking dickheads. What did he say? Okay. What? What was that? Right. I don't know. Edit this, motherfuckers. I'll fucking Gareth edit this. John. Don't you fucking worry. Thanks, Gordon. I know how you edited it last time. No, you don't. You no, never fucking you. listened. No, you no. missed it. No, don't give me that fucking... shit. You didn't listen, you oh. fucking. You got it. When we finish this, you got to tune in and just go straight to the end, the last five minutes. What are the hardest parts about making the transition to full time maker? Gareth John. Dear John. Thanks, Gareth. I, I guarantee you the hardest part. And Mert will probably agree with me in this. The hardest part about making the transition to full-time maker is when the realisation hits that you no longer have a paycheck. <laughs> yes. The realisation that your livelihood now is the responsibility of yourself and what you do and what you believe in what you can do. And I will fucking not sugarcoat it it's it's a fucking it's it's a fucking stressful period of time. It really fucking is. Kev, I don't know if you agree, but it's like when you see a car races and you know, like the guy, the car goes in the pit and they're changing the tire. And whenever they're changing the tire, it's the actual time that you're losing from creating income. You yeah. have shit that you have shit that's breaking in your shop. You have to change the bearings. You have to change this. You have to maintain the something in a grinder. You have to maintain something in your fucking power hammer. Every time that happens, that's like a going to pit to change your tire in a car race. And while yeah. you're going to pits to change your car tire, get a fuel or something, the race is fucking going on. And that race is called as life. That race is called as fucking bills. That race is called as surviving. Yeah, fuck yeah. It's 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 about realizing that not only the making of the product, but you've also got to be the salesman. You've also got to be the marketing person. You've also got to be the logistics. You've got to be the logistics, the logistics manager, the HR manager, the fucking um, accounts payable and accounts receivable manager. You gotta be all those fucking roles that you just don't fucking even consider for a second. That all of a sudden, that transition where you go from, you know, full time or part time employee of a of an organization where you have a role to do that you get paid for, when you make that step over to full time knife maker, um, you know, you've you've gotta have the market, you've gotta have the fucking product. You've got to have the time to do it. You've got to have the marketing. And I still fail on a lot of that stuff. And I'm, like I said, fortunate enough that, well, it's fortunate or unfortunate 
depending which way you look at it. But Roy so, has a decent job. That's what you're saying. Roe, Roe, yeah, my wife, Roe, has a great job. Um, I was very frugal with my spending as a young person, and, and uh, one of the key things I learned off my dad, you know, albeit like no fucking career direction or anything, but he's like, son, pay off your fucking debts. So for the 17 years that I was working in the fucking public sector, earning good money, man, I wasn't fucking travelling overseas, staying in four-star, five-star hotels. I was paying off my fucking mortgage. I was looking at debt as a fucking black mark against my name. And I got myself to a stage where that fucking level was not so bad that if I fucking failed, like I was saying before, if I failed... I'll go back and get a job at Bunnings or something and, and we'll survive. But the, the biggest transition and the hardest transition, seriously, was that fucking mark, that fucking day in history where my last fucking paycheck from an employer hit my bank account. And I looked at my bank account and went, well, fuck me. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's up to me from here on in. Yeah, man. And, I, you know, I, remember, I remember the similar thing too, man. It's like, yeah, you got paid, and the week that you after you sell a knife, like, yeah, you almost. Uh, then the week after, if you don't sell, like, oh shit, <laughs> things are getting tied. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I was teaching. I was teaching, so like my stress, which I still. It's a funny thing is also the psychological side of that transition to being a full-time maker is, uh, you know, like dropping the stress levels. Like I was, I was worried about filling fucking course placements six months in advance. It's like, fuck, I don't need to worry about six months in advance. I need to worry about fucking two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. But the, the mindset in me was like, no, 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 look at fucking this. I've got those dates available for courses. I've got to fill them and then I can relax because then I can do this. And that, that was a big change as well. Like you, you're self-reliant. My business model was different to a lot of others out there as well. Like I said, most of my income was from teaching. Um, my sales were predominantly face-to-face, -face, so knife shows, because that's where I got to be the player. I got to be myself. The extroverted Kev got out there and fucking sell my knives, create that relationship. But yeah, the biggest transition, man, is someone else ain't paying for you to do this anymore. Someone else is not paying you to do this anymore. That's the biggest fucking change ever. It's not something I've experienced, so but I heard Mert uh, agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. Got another one here. How do you feel about Ian's one? Ah, uh, Ian. I fucking frequently we hear Mer Tansu saying, fuck you, Kev. I'll ask this question of, of Ian and answer it myself. All right, go. Okay. Yeah, actually, you can read it out. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. Frequently we hear <laughs> Mert Tansu saying, fuck you, Kev. Does it still hurt as much now as the first time he said it? What advice would you give to others facing facing such systematic and prolonged workplace abuse? Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Ian, Ian, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, Ian. <laughs> no, nah, look, honestly, 
it, it, there's a there's a comes a point in time, which is completely. It, it's like a fucking feeling of euphoria, where you no longer give a fuck about what others think or say. And I and I hit that point. I really did. I hit that point not long after I left the public service. Not long after I had that nervous breakdown and my life fucking spun around for a while. So like, what the fuck am I worried about what others think of me? Which is why some people think I'm a complete arsehole and some complete, some people think that I'm a fucking really good bloke because what I say is what I say and, you know, if, if you're going to dwell on shit, dwell on it. I don't, I don't care. I really don't care. And you get to that point where you don't care and, and, and there's a certain level of freedom. But every time Mert says, fuck you, Kev, a little bit of my soul does die. Kev, a little bit of that. Kev, <laughs> Kev, okay. Listen, do I say that shit for fun or what do I endure? No, you don't what endure do I anything. I think that's to... a bit rough, Mert, putting your abuse on him. You can't make the victim <laughs> responsible for your abuse. Okay. Fuck you, Corin. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, like I said, you know, that first time that I met Mert, we talked about this just before, that first time that I met Mert at Everly, I, I honestly was fucking stoked. I seriously was fucking stoked. It and, took me know. a really long time to say that, Kev. You know that. Yeah, I know. You were, you, you were yeah. stirring me shit. You were being... <laughs> it took me a really fucking long time to say it. Don't act like, don't act like, oh, fuck you, Kev. No, no, it took me a really long time to say it. And all we got to do, something. all we got to do, and there's a fair few people out there listening that, that saw it, let's, let's travel back in time a little bit, man. Let's travel back in time to the Queensland Knife Show last year where you fed me watermelon, and then, and then when you went to bed, I went over and did a live feed <laughs> while you were tucked in the bed. <laughs> and there's an example of why I don't take what you say when you say, fuck you, Kev. I don't take it seriously. We've shared moments. <laughs> I'll fucking sleep. This creepy motherfucker. He's like, yeah, I'm about to put the phone right next to his face. Oh, see what he does. Like, Fuck you, Kev. I'm sleeping. I'm... Well, I fucking strategically fucking, like, put me power lift, ex-powerlifting fucking self into place there and locked that blanket in there so Merck couldn't fucking get his arms free and punch me in the fucking head. <laughs> should have. I should have. <laughs> you fucking couldn't. Because I was fucking too good for you. <laughs> the funniest thing about these questions, the people listening, unless they get on the group, are never going to know. Because every question's got a little comment from Knife Making Down Under about how fucking great Kev is. Oh, really? It's a little bit funny, that, isn't it? You guys are fucking... Was that you, Mert? Did you get on there and make some nice comments about how good Kev is? You fucking no. must have. Definitely. What do you mean, no? Definitely Hell not. <laughs> I don't remember doing it either. Don't. There's only three of us with access. You guys have got short memories. <laughs> so what's the next question? The next one's on hand sanding, your tips and tricks for the perfect finish. Well, again, 
It's nice to think that someone thinks that my finish is perfect. It's far from it, but the tips and tricks are obviously take your time in what you're doing. Make sure that you fucking get a good finish at each grit before you go up. So when you're starting at your lower grits, keep working your way up. And you've got to be self-critical. If you can see something that you think is not quite right, I guarantee you someone else can see it that's not going quite right. Now, when I see some people doing their stuff online, occasionally I'll flick them a message and say, you know, that was a nice photo, but when you enlarge that photo, you can still, still see some really big scratches on your knife. My advice would be to, you know, go diagonal one way to you can't see any marks diagonal the other way with the next grid up to you can't see those previous marks and repeat that process till you get up to the stage where you're doing your final finish and then go back and forth at your near nominated grid let's say 600 and at the very end do your drag and drop so when i say drag and drop start at your your ricasso pull your sandpaper forward to the tip of the blade and rinse and repeat that step. Another thing which comes in handy there is if you're after a 600 grit finish, don't stop at 600, technically. Like do your 600 passes till you're satisfied and then go up to say a thousand grit and just do two or three passes at a thousand grit just to knock off a little bit of that top level of your 600 grit sanding. And, and be critical, have a look around. We talked about lighting in workshops and stuff on the last one, I think. Too drunk to consider it. But, you know, take your knife out of your, your holder. Go and have a look at it. If you can see something, if you think something's wrong, it's probably fucking wrong. So you've got to trust in your own thing. The other thing is knowing when to stop. That's a big big step, the dirty S word, stop. You, you can fucking go over it 500 fucking times but 495 times might be excess to what you really needed. So when you when you get to a point where you, you're happy, stop. Don't keep going, just stop. So your final passes, like I said, diagonally each grit till you can't see any marks and be pretty critical. And then your final passes in, in that direction along with the blade, then step it up a couple of hundred grits, do a few passes extra, and then stop and, and be satisfied. So you're saying give it a couple of strokes and be satisfied. Couple of strokes, be satisfied. That's what I live by. Yeah. <laughs> and the paper makes a difference too, by the way. Yeah. And yes, you have a point there to be like uh, Rhino Wet was a game changer. And I also use a cutting compound. I'm happy to put a photo up on the fucking uh, podcast page, not making down on a page. I use a cutting compound, which is normally used for machining, and I water it down, and I use that for my hand sanding. I don't use Windex, and I don't use WD-40, and I don't use fucking dishwashing detergent with water. I use this particular cutting compound. Mix it with water, soluble oil? It's like 20 to 1 mix. It's really, really diluted. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking... Yeah, soluble oil. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put up a photo. It's made made for high precision dry, um, grinding and cooling applications in machining. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I use it too. Yeah, nice. What's the next question? Three-in-one oil. Mert's holding up a bottle of three-in-one oil. It's not the same thing, Mert. It's cheap, motherfucker. Mert, you got the next one? 
Hang on. Oh fuck! It loved me out, motherfucker. <laughs> I'll I'll do it. Yeah. It's it's a, quite a lot of lines. Yeah. Uh, Iron bark knives. Good day, guys. I'm fairly new and mostly broke. What? Off for it. Conk. <laughs> Iron bark knives. Go for it, you cabbage. Drink up, Brett. Anyway, go ahead. No, that's for... Iron bark knives. G'day guys, I'm a fairly new and mostly broke stock removal knife maker trying to figure out what to buy first to make my knife making to the next level. To take my knife making to the next level. What would you purchase first? A belt grinder? A kiln? A wood stabilizing setup? I have heaps of raw wood I want to stabilize for handle material. Right. We, no we, we answered this no over and over. Hey, shut up, man. Yeah. Shut up, man. He's asking me. Not you. It's, it's, he's asking oh. Kev. See, and it says there, Knife Making Down Under commented on this post and says, Iron Bark Knives, we're looking forward to hearing Kev's point of view on this great question. <laughs> I'm, I'm you happy idiots. which one of you guys put that on there. Um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah sure, mate. My point definitely of view. not fucking me. Fucking definitely not me. Yeah, yeah. I, get, I, I teach classes. I get a lot of people through. They see my workshop, which is fucking got heaps of tools in it. And most of them say, what do I need to start with, Kevin? Okay, buy the best grinder that you can afford and and use that to begin with. Because if you can grind, like especially if you're a stock removalist knife maker, a good grinder will help you get better results in what you're doing. So buy the best grinder that you can afford that will help you do the job. If you if you're on the borderline between an average grinder and a good grinder, for example, or a good grinder, an average grinder and a good grinder with accessories, hold off a little bit, save up your coin, and do the do the one purchase once that you're happy with, and don't fucking sit there and regret it. And you can always buy the accessories later. Yeah. If, if it's a grinder that you can accessorize. Yeah. Like some grinders you can't get any accessories for. There's not many accessories available. But if it's, a, if it's just a, a normal knife grinder, don't go all out. Don't go buy a, a basic grinder with a whole bunch of accessories. Get a variable speed grinder and get the accessories later. Absolutely. Variable speed is definitely an advantage. If you want to do – if you want to up your game – Look, at variable speed is without a doubt the best thing you're going to get. Yeah. And yes, mate. We've yeah. covered that a lot. I think Kev that's what Bert a... was crying about. No, oh, fuck you. Kev is an expert of grinders. <laughs> yeah, that's grinder, I think, mate. <laughs> Different grinders. Different grinders. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love grinder. Yeah, no doubt. Rob Hayes. <laughs> um, How do you keep the flame alive? So to speak. Oh, well, that's a good one. That's a good going back to Grinder. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> How do you keep the flame alive? So What's the question? You? What's the question, you fuckheads? <laughs> right, my phone is about there, guys. Come on, Mert. Come on, read it, man. How do you keep the flame alive? So to speak. How do you reconcile the passion for the craft and your progression with the economic realities of being a full-time maker well how do you make it not a job i think is what he's saying how do you how do you keep your passion your passion and not your job well we matt and i talked about this a bit at the start of this podcast sometimes it is a job sometimes the harsh reality is 
you got to get out there and you got to finish a fucking knife to get it out to a customer. Or if you go to a knife show, you've got to get out there and you've got to finish fucking 10 knives and then go and make 10 shears or 10 sayers and, and get it done by X date to be at your fucking knife show table or you fucking get your customer's order finished. Simple fact of the matter. When you don't have that pressure on is, again, what Mert and I were talking about earlier on is make, make what you fucking want and just do something for fun and chances are, when you're doing something for fun, people will notice that. And you'll, and you know, especially the experience that I've got, the level that I'm at is, do something for fun that you want to do, and you're going to end up with something that's pretty fucking cool. I reckon, anyway. Something different, maybe. It might be different to the normal sort of side of things that you make. People will spot that. And most times when I make something that I'm just having a bit of a fuck around in the shed. Ah, I'm going to make a fucking knife. It sells quicker than most of the time. Most of the time I'm making a knife and have to fucking market the shit out of it because I'm treating it like a job. The other side of that question is, you know, if you don't want to be in the workshop, if you're in the workshop as a full-time knife maker and you're sitting there and you're gritting your teeth going, fuck this, I don't want to do this, fucking go for a fucking bike ride, go for a walk, go do the shopping, get out of the fucking workshop until that fucking spark fucking clicks again and then go into the workshop. Because if you're sitting in there, you know, every paid employee of any business has those times where they sit there and they're like, fuck this. As a, as a full-time knife maker, when you go into your workshop, if you get those moments where you're like, fuck this, the best thing you can do is walk out of the workshop and close the fucking door. It could be for half an hour, it could be for an hour, it could be for a day. Get out of the fucking workshop, come back in when your fucking attitude's right and you're going to progress. Because you'll fuck around or clean your workshop, do something, you know. Go do your tax for half an hour or a day. That's that's about my answer for that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so Dan Peterson, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently when you first became a full-time maker? <laughs> I wouldn't have become a full-time maker. <laughs> Booyah. 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 <laughs> I'm joking about it, but I'm in one way I'm serious. You know, I was like, oh, I don't know. My, my game plan for my, my own, when I went into my own business, looking after myself, was based off what I was doing previously was the model business model for my stuff was teaching. So the teaching side of it was what I wanted to do. Would I have changed much? Probably not a lot. I honestly, with my business model, wouldn't have changed a lot. Um, but, you know, all, all jokes aside, if, with, if I had the power of hindsight, I might have just fucking taking an extra six months off and going back to my old job and stuck at knife making as a hobby. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's a sad reality, but I don't have any regrets. I don't have any regrets. I, I walked away from a from a, a very well-paid job that broke me that I lost the passion for. And I stepped into something that was something I was very passionate about and, I, and I, I believed in myself that I could make a business out of it. 
and I, and I'm meeting the goals that I set for myself. I, I am meeting the goals that I set for myself. The, the, the horrible fucking reality is shit like this fucking coronavirus lockdown, which is completely out of my control, has affected my business in a really bad way. But I'll come out of it at the other end. Like, uh, you know, I'll come out all right. No, fair enough. Mert. Hang on. Right. Rob Hayes thought we got it. Ian Reynolds. When you look at the nice people post up on social media or the nice on other makers' tables at shows, what would be the top three issues, problems you see? Oh, okay. That's a contentious one, really. Yeah. Sorry, um, motherfucker. Yeah, look, you know. You can skip it if you want. We've got, we've got another 20 questions, so we're never going to get them done. Look, no. Just find, let's just find some questions you want to answer. In a, in a, in a quick sense. Guys, we, we've been, we've been in, going at two and a half hours. Nah. Well, we've only been recording for two, yeah. No, nah, look, okay, people that look like they've taken not enough time to finish the job. They've rushed it. They're not considered things like fit and finish properly. And um, another one that I see quite often, which is subjective, obviously, is um, proportional, blade, handle length, that sort of stuff, and and design overall. But, you know, like everyone's got to start somewhere. I, I go back in hindsight and look at what I did for my first knife show. I fucking love to take those knives back and never have them out there, but they're out there. You, you've got to start somewhere and you've got to progress along. That's it. You know, take your time, finish it properly. Be subjective in your own work. Next question. Barney Lund says, how do you combat a complete lack of motivation to make knives? I, I literally don't go into my workshop on those days. If I get up in the morning I, I, and, and I have a fucking situation where I don't think I'm going to fucking... I don't want to be in my workshop. Barney, you're, you're building your workshop. You've got the same thing as me. Your workshop's going to be probably further away from your back door than mine. If you look out there and you're like, fuck, I just couldn't be fucked. Don't even fucking go out there. Do something else. If you find half an hour later, and this is quite often the case with me, half an hour later you're like, nah, nah fuck it, I'll go out there. Go out there. But if you're like, I don't want to go out to my workshop and start making knives, don't fucking do it. Because you'll fuck something up and that will exponentially fucking become a problem because you'll be like, I didn't want to come out of here and now I've fucked up this knife that I've been working on for two days. I've got to fucking start again. Just don't go out there. That's the simple thing. Stop, pause, start again later. All right. There's another one. Next one's from Ivan. Mert, you want this one? This is from Ivan. What is your method in sharpening your knives? Right. For my hunting knives, it's belt finish. I use J-Flex, fucking, um, what do you, what do you now got those 3M bloody micro belts, Corin? Yeah, micro finishing belts, yeah. Yeah, micro finishing. So I go to tries, so I go from, like, say, a 240 grit J-Flex to a um, A16 or A45 Trizac to a, one of the finishing one of the finishing micron finishing belts for my two by 48s at the moment, you've only got belts to go up to about a thousand grit. So I use on my hunting knives, I do that. Then I use the paper wheel 
take off the burrs, then I strop them on a leather strop that's a piece of leather stuck to a 20 mil ply, and I use a 60,000 grit micro, uh, 60,000 micron um, diamond lapping paste on that. With the kitchen knives, I do the same process, but then I take them inside and I use 3,000 or 8,000 grit stones, synthetic stones. That that's it. Okay. Yeah. Easy peasy. We're smashing through them. Nick Edwards says, "I heard you say a while back you changed your handle shape on your hunting knives. What was behind that, and what is the improvement?" Now, this was when you were in the states, Kev. I remember you talking about this, and a guy in yeah. America, or a couple of guys in America, gave you some tips, and you never did elaborate on that. That's that's very true. And and you'll notice that knife making down under podcast commented on this question, and they're keen to learn about what it is too. <laughs> those guys, I tell you, those guys are amazing. Those knife making down on the podcast guys, they're, they're, they're right on the bloody uh, cusp, cusp of uh, excellence. So what it, what it was was one of my first trip to Blade Show, and that's a drink for someone because on the on the drinking game, someone was saying about every time I mention Blade Show, they're going to have a drink. When I went over to Blade Show for the first year, and I had an opportunity to put my knives on a table. I had, I think it was like three or four mastersmiths come up and look at my knives when I wasn't there. So I was like, hey, hey, Bill, can you look after my knives? I'm going to go and have a quick wander around. That's the opportunity, even in Australia with knife shows, that's the opportunity most people quickly run over and have a look at your knives. So there was a very small design element with the tail end of my handles near the butt end of the handles that I had four mastersmiths give me the same advice and it was a very subtle change whereas my handle sweep went you know full sort of subtle radius down and if you know what a what's the fucking thing is like the the bowie knives with the bloody gun handle sort of curve in the back of the handle that, that was what i was saying rather than a full sweep put a little bit of a subtle curve in there which fits the palms well nicer the key thing with that is, ultimately, I would like to attain my journeyman smith standard of knives. The advice that I was receiving was from master smiths in that ABS scene, and they were telling me a design element that they thought was appropriate to what they were looking for. So initially, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Two people, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Third person was like, oh, okay, I might start listening to this. Fourth person was like, all right, I better have a look at this. So I came home and grabbed a finished knife that hadn't had the subtle change they were after, and I applied it, and I was like, actually, you know what? That's not too bad. I'll post something up to show you the difference. I'll post it. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'll post something up to show you. I still go between the two. Sometimes I'm like, no, nah, I like my idea, I like my old way. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, you know what, I'll apply their, their advice. Cool beans. Yeah. Myrtle. Oh, <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs> Cabbage. Drink up, everyone. Every fucking time he does this, he's making like 20 minutes of editing for me. So I've got to go back, cut, make it all fucking sensible. Guys, guys, I'm I'm, ba I'm, I'm barely keeping up. Like I'm about to fucking 
fall asleep during the live live podcast. Oh, am I that boring, you fucking prick? Uh, well, I'm doing my best. I had a couple of coffees, so I'm all right. Yeah, I had a coffee about five o'clock. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Guys, I had two fucking bottles of wine, guys. I'm, 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 I'm running out of time. Two know. bottles of wine. Well, why don't you sing us a song? Let's just have an interlude. You sing us a song. I want to hear something by uh, Elton John. Rocket Man. Come on. Elton John is not my jam. Well, what is man? Give us, give us a, give us your jam. Who do you like, man? Yeah, what do you rock to, mate? Oh fuck! This can be used against me, right? Oh, and will be, and will be. Be assured. And and will be. Perhaps a fucking lowly. You still haven't heard what we did with it last week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's let's. Jaden Ward, Jaden Ward. Thanks, Jaden. Jaden Ward said, "What is your favourite style of?" point for hunting knives and why i.e. clip point drop point etc my favorite style in in my functional knives that i do is drop point knives because because a drop point knife you can do lots of variations of subtle variations of you still come out with a really cool knife my favorite style of that sort of point knife is a clip point i, I love bowies i love the old school clip points they're, they're a fascination for me, but functional knives, drop point, that the ones I really want to make, clip points. There you go. Matt Snape, material selection for both blades and handles. Uh, where is your happy medium between preference between function, aesthetics, and cost? Material selection for blades and handles. Carbon steels are my favourite because I can forge them. W2 is my absolute favourite because I can add a home on to it. So a W2 blade. I have a little old school. Guards are like bronze or uh, definitely bronze, sometimes brass. Handle materials, hardwoods. Mostly Australians, sometimes um, exotic hardwoods. If you could only... Matt Snape asked the next question, which is, if you could only ever have or use one knife, what would it look like? Um, it would look like the kitchen knife that I use in my kitchen most days, if not every day, which is one that I developed uh, or made when I was learning from Chad, Tristone Blades, and it's it's the go-to knife for me. Matt, Matt's yawning. He's, he's looking at me like he's about to fall asleep. Fuck you, I'm Matt. Already oh, he's already asleep. Oh, good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. <laughs> you gotta listen to the <laughs> You gotta listen. You <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for that one. Are yeah. you lonesome tonight? Go for it. Are you lonesome? <laughs> no, what? No. Have another bottle of wine. We'll be right. Seth, Seth would ask. Yeah. Any pointers for someone wanting to make an S grind on a kitchen knife? Don't follow Already. me. Don't follow Already. me. Already. I, yeah, don't follow Already. me. I don't do S grinds. There's, follow someone that does S grinds good and see what they do. I Honestly, I don't do S grinds. I, I, there's something about them I don't, I don't gel with. What about um, 
I like I like uh, we can skip I like here. the subtle convex. I like I just saying before I learned my kitchen knife stuff from Chad, Tristone Blades, and a little bit of my stuff from Mert. I don't like S grinds. I like the the convex subtle convex stuff. So go and have a look at some guys on Instagram that do S grinds and see what they get up to. John Worthington Rippy Knives um, has been doing some. S crimes lately that turned out really well. So go have a look at Rippy Knives. He's a Kiwi fucker. Yeah, Mefflin asked, is six inches really enough? I don't know, because five inches is all I've got to offer. <laughs> what is the best audio setup for listening to podcasts in the workshop whilst protecting your ears from loud equipment? Alistair? That's a good question. One I'd like to know as well. Well, it is. Well, Ro just bought me, my wife, Ro, who's like a goddess. <sighs> Ro, Ro just bought me a pair of 3M if Bluetooth earphones. They are 3M work tunes, and they are pretty fucking awesome. They've got a 24 dB noise reduction, and you can also Bluetooth it. And listen to your favourite podcast, whether that's me talking shit, Mert singing to sleep, or Corrin fucking talking shit, or you know some other cabbage on a fucking on a podcast. <laughs> but 3M, 3M. These I've used these WorkTunes ones since my birthday on the seventh of April. Thanks everyone that hasn't said happy birthday to me yet, but I'm waiting. Happy birthday. Day, Mr. President. <laughs> We've done that one too. Yeah, move on. Yeah, 3M work tunes are pretty awesome. I've got a huge melon. My fucking head is fucking huge. 3M headphones fit over my fucking ears perfectly. I love them. So let's go there. Outside of that, I reckon we've gone pretty fucking long. It's been podcast. almost three fucking hours, man. Oh, it hasn't been that long, you fuckhead. No, it's only two and a half. We're nearly at the end anyway, but that's that's about where. My favourite hammer and tongs. My favourite hammer is a fucking dog's head hammer from Everly Works. Matty Mewburn, Matty Spewbum. And my favourite tongs are heat-treating tongs that were made for me by Andrew Kondik, who goes under Chuo Knives from New Zealand. I, uh, uh, awesome. I believe Mert has a pair of those. Yeah. You got one of those, and, you, man? And, and the funny thing is, they saw my videos and they felt so bad. They're like, mate, get a fucking proper tongs. There you go. I was like, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Andrew Kondik is a fucking madman. That dude can swing a fucking hammer and move steel like you fucking wouldn't believe. He's a friend of John Wardington, but we're not going to hold him against that. Nah. John, John's a fucker. Yeah, he's all right. He's all right. Andrew's all right, yeah. Nah, they're good blokes. They're good blokes. All right, so I reckon that's about fucking, that's enough. Yeah, that's an episode on a bit. Yeah, everyone's bored of listening to me fucking talk. That's going to be for sure. I'm going to have to fucking fall asleep. That was a fucking sad episode. Mert's going to sleep, and fucking what do we want from our listeners? You're fucking going to sleep too, you fuckhead. Oh, yeah, all playing on Instagram either way. No, seriously, it was a great... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think shit fucking... on the computer fucking... 
No, no, I was just... This is why I fucking stay I just got a notification. Why did you get a notification? I just got a notification. I got a notification from my good mate, Rodrigo Sofredo, who sends his best wishes to us. No shit. So I was kind of... He says what? He says he's missing us all. He said, Corin and Kev. He said, Corin and Kev, I really miss you guys. It's a pity you still fucking got that Mert idiot with you. Yeah, yeah. It's bringing you down. Hey. And uh, I just want to say, while you're on the topic of saying people send you messages, yeah. I also got a message. I got a message from the big fucking ginger, the big ginger, oh, Richard. Richard Morgan. He said he's ordered he's ordered some cake wench and W two, and he's going to try the hum on business. Oh, taking it up, Richard. Good fucking luck, mate. Sick as bruh. Sick as sick as. You need the special star marked fifty two one hundred. Fuck you, Gordon. <laughs> what? what? Uh, that was from McVicker, wasn't it? No, that was. <laughs> well, I'm off, guys. I'm, I'm about to fucking hit the bed. I'm better keeping my eyes open. All right, mate. Oh, you're a yeah. subcock. Yeah. So. Fuck you. Yeah, Fuck out of here, Brad. Fuck you, Gordon. Yeah, drink, drink up, Brett. Drink up, Brett. Yeah, out of here first. Nerds of cabbage. See you later, you giant fucking coleslaw. See you, see you later, Mert, you fucking Mert. Quitter. Thank, okay. Thanks, everyone. Oh, yeah, you just yawn. Last week you sang us to sleep. This week you're fucking yawning. I'm thanks, everyone. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, uh... hopefully I fucking was able to shed some light on... We tried our best, okay? Shut up, man. Go to bed, you fuck. Fuck you, bitch. You know, I've got to say that. You know, every time I share a room with Mert, I've got to say that to him. Shut up, man. Go to fucking bed, you fuck. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, Mert. Good night. Good night, Mert. Ah, oh, well, mate, that was a that was a bit of a serious one. This one is a nah. Bit of a serious episode, so a little bit. I've uh, still got a fucking. I've still got a third of a third of a glass of fucking red wine to drink. Yeah, I didn't drink anymore. I got a I got a bloody meeting with Facebook first thing tomorrow morning. I got to get up. Ah, fuck that then. And I'm fucking still dirty about that money, but anyway. Yeah. See you, mate. See you, mate. And see you, listeners. Have a good one. All the best, and thanks for listening. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. really, like, seriously, barely holding my eyes open. Yeah, fuck off. We're finished. We're finished, man. We're done. See you, man. Fuck off. I had a fuck few. You, man. Let him go. Let him go. Fuck you, man. And again, to few to mention. I know you're recording this. Fuck you, Gordon. Start again. Nope. How many reds <laughs> did you have? <laughs> Two bottles. Hey, you've had some reds. You've had a few. Come on, sing it, Mert. Give me a clip. Woo. Oh, oh fuck! I can barely fucking walk straight. You can sing and walk. You can sing and walk. Come on, Screw sing guys. and walk, man. Screw guys, sing. I'm going home. You are home. You never left. Nah, sing us the song. Come on, dude. It's fucking dark. And I, oh fuck. Um, Claire's gone. Sing, sing us a song, you fuckhead. Fuck you guys. Fuck you too. Fuck mate. you, Kev. Fuck you too. Fuck you, Corn.
Good night, guys.